Welcome, everyone. My name is Bill Osgood, uh, teaching pastor here at Bethel Christian Church. And for you, those of you just joining us, we are continuing our series in the book of Romans. So please help yourself to a Bible in front of you. We'll be uh, in Romans chapter 8. Um, before we get started, just want to um, ask, how many people have been following the Olympics? It's this thing that happens every so many years. A lot of, lot of Olympic fans, I can see. Um, yeah, I don't know. Maybe it's the location. Maybe it's um, actually I have a friend who's who's there. He'll be skiing on the 18th, um, freestyle half pipe. I, I don't know what the connection is, but but for some reason it's just the floods of memories are coming back. Um, I used to live in Russia for about 12 years, and so just seeing Russia and the interviews and the backstories and reports and stuff, there's just a lot of memories coming back. So so bear with me. Here's yet another one. But um, talked last week about getting a driver's license in, in Russia, which is to say that really our DMV is pretty awesome here. Um, that was my fault because my visa status. Um, one of the things that was just an amazing transformation, an amazing eye-opener, was the sense of when you're learning a language, uh, how much your identity is completely bound up in your ability to communicate, in your ability to really operate out of uh, facility in that language. Um, I, this is something we all take for granted. Um, English has to be the easiest language on the planet, right? Because there's little kids that can speak it. You know, it's just, it's super easy. Whatever your native language is, you don't understand that you actually had to learn this language. And, and your whole identity is just your ability to operate in this till you learn another language. Now, for most of us, learning a language is probably a necessary evil in school. And you just kind of Google translate it your way through it or whatever previous generations used to do, um, and you get the grade and you're out of there. Or you grew up perhaps in a bilingual household and you hadn't given it much thought. But but for those that, of us that have done the, the hard work of learning a language just um, old school, uh, it's it's an amazing um, clarity on, on how much our identities derive from that. I discovered this uh, when I went to um, serve in Russia. Now, God had laid Russia on my heart years before. I, I was just such a selfish person, or more so than I am now. And I just woke up sobbing about three in the morning for people that didn't have God's word in Russia. This is back in, in the Soviet era. And it just rocked my world. And, and I just could not um, escape just this, this the burden that God had laid upon my heart. And so I, I took a year of Russian um, last year's school and, okay, God, however you want to use this. Big mistake. You can't speak Russian in Eastern Europe. They, they hate that language. Every time I try to speak Russian, people would spit at me. Russian's the language of the occupiers. We speak German. Yeah, they, they weren't the occupiers. I'm not sure how that worked out. But um, so I, I thought I could use Russian, then I couldn't use it. Finally got a chance in 1990 to move to Siberia. And I got off the train, nobody spoke English, awesome motivator to learn a language. Now, now I have no Russian roots. Um, I, I didn't hear Russian before I took this class. And when I got off that train in Siberia, I really wish I'd attended more of those classes than gone skiing. No, who were kidding? I'm glad I went skiing. It's awesome. But, but had, I, had, I, had I learned a language, that would have been more helpful at that time. Get off the train. Nobody speaks English whatsoever. Complete immersion. And so, you know, have to use the bathroom charades. It, it got from comic communication to really, I'm going to be here long term. I need to learn this language. And so everything I heard 24-7, it was all Russian. Uh, my, my friend who, from the Netherlands and I, we wound up in this... Um, this hotel for coal miners. 
Um, and uh, it turned out to be this mafia uh, kind of hub. Uh, my mom must have been praying a lot because these two grandmother types who owned the hotel took us under their wing and cooked us up porridge and showed us how to make our own kasha so we could survive. And um, it was just this learning the right way and the wrong way to connect and relate. Now, days turned into weeks, turned into months, turned into years. And, and over the time, just from hearing Russian, how it was used in all areas of life, I, I began to operate more out of this new Russian identity that I, that I was developing. See, prior to getting off that train, I had 22 years that taught me I was an American. America. And, and this is the way it works in America, and this is how you do things, and how life works, and how you get things done. But in Russia, things didn't work that way. Not because it was right or because it was wrong. It was just a different world. And so what worked in America really didn't work too well in in, um, quasi-Soviet Russia. Uh, It was me having to unlearn all the American ways and relearn the Russian ways. In America, you make deals and it's contracts and you you get people to sign everything and and there's um, you can hold people's feet to the fire. Literally in Russia, a contract's not worth the paper it's written on. you got to shake somebody's hand. And you only shake somebody's hand when you've had a sauna with them. Sauna is about a 280 degree room and you just gather around and you're naked. Um, there might be a general or a mayor's suit or a general's uniform or a teacher's outfit, you know, on the clothes rack outside, but we're all the same. And this is where family matters happen. This is where business deals happen. And so learning to do sauna and you're just putting in the time, it's trust. It's getting to know people. And once you've done that, then it's personal, then it's relationship, and you shake it. Hand, that matters. You're, you're bound. And, and so it's learning to, this is how the value, this is what the value is, this is how life works, learning to do things differently. I, I was entrusted with having to publish um, Bibles and discipleship materials in Siberia, why it was still communist. Um, I, I think it was like a, a bad bet or something. And hey, let's get Bill to do this and see what can happen. It was this impossible situation. And every time I tried to do something like I would have done in America, it wasn't working. But I found that all the work that I was frustrated doing, going to this party, having this jazz band show up to practice at three at night in our apartment every single night, um, all the mafia friends that taught us to navigate the bad mafia and the good mafia, policemen, teachers, soldiers, musicians, all these people around showing what life was like, then I understood operating out of this identity, this is how you get things done. I, I, I got to know the director of the Pravda publishing house and, and we became friends and I said, Hey, what are your needs? We don't have any paper. Um, I, I, we got a, uh, everyone in the fa- factory is about to lose their job. I said, if we can get paper, what do you say? We print some Bibles and some Pravda together. He said, I tell you what, you get me paper. I'm not going to be here at night. Whatever just happens to get printed. I'll have no idea. And and so it was, okay, how are we going to get paper? Then I had some friends in an army base. Hey, paper comes through here all the time. Had somebody else in motor transport. We could borrow a truck. We can trade drill bits. And so it was all these different relationships that I had been cultivating, feeling frustrated. I can't do this as an American. I'm helpless. But learning to operate out of this new identity. And it wasn't just language. It was worldview. It was value. It was culture. It's where you spent time. I was able to then navigate this strange new world in a very different identity. I think this is, this is pretty much what happens when we come to Christ. 
That we have our whole life pre-Christ formed, killed, hardened as to who we are. They call the growing up years the formative years. Because although we're wet clay, the world squeezes us into its mold and we get hardened pretty fast. And so we come to Christ very fluent in the language of the world. Very fluent in, in making ourselves apart from God. But now we have to learn the heavenly language of grace, of surrender, of trust, of vulnerability, intimacy. All the things that we really learned in a very weird way before that. And so we have this new identity that we're operating out of, but we have this old identity that is much more familiar. You know, when I got really tired in Russia, guess what I did? I'd revert to my American way of thinking. You know, when I was just dialed in, I'd be dreaming in Russian, thinking in Russian. You, you, you think in a language, you speak, it's very fluent. But when I had been away or I was less involved in people or I'd been out of the country and I'd come back, um, it was a lot harder to jump in. And my default American identity was just always beneath the surface. So I had to be very deliberate. Much in the same way that there's this old identity which is just beneath the surface for all of us who've made the break, who've come to Christ. And unless we're actively choosing to operate out of that principle, out of that new reality, we're going to default to being American or to being pre-Christ. Not just in what we do, but in why we do what we do. Okay, going to be looking at really the way in which we consider ourselves, the way we, we see life, the way that we see God. Going to be in Romans um, 8, 1 to 17. Simple, simple point is this. Life in the spirit is a daily choice. See, what we tend to do as Christians is, is one of two things. We say, you're coming to God, that's evangelism. Or if you're a theologian, justification, fancy word. And then afterward, that's what we call our growth or walking with the Lord or a fancy word, sanctification. And so part of it is making the change and then it's living the rest of our life in that reality. But what we tend to do as believers, because this is just so huge, is we mash both categories into one thing. Let go and let God. God did something. I'm saved, and I'm just living in the Spirit. Nothing changes. Nothing matters. And when I die, I go to heaven. Or we separate the categories out. God did all this heavy lifting to bring us into the kingdom, and now it, it's up to us. We got to do. We got to try harder. We got to keep on keeping on. And it's disappointment and defeat. And so how can we hold this tension between what we could never do and God did already to now the life we get to live and, and, and not keep reverting to what's familiar? Okay, let's jump right in text, starting with verse 1, chapter 8. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Anybody remember last week? Uh, what was the last verse? From Romans 7. Romans 7 was Paul saying, this is what it is for somebody trying to serve God without his spirit. Trying to be good enough, trying to measure up, trying to do it on their own. And it's just disappointment, defeat, and death. And Paul's cry through all of this. This is his autobiography. This is what led him to do whatever to serve God, even killing his own people. He was so bent around his own inability to serve God, he just cast it out there. Paul's cry from that day was, who will save me from the body of this death? I hate me. I'm my own worst enemy. TSA can screen for all sorts of terrorist activity. The one terrorist they can't screen for is the one that travels inside each of us, our old sin identity. And Paul realized this long before there was a need for TSA. Uh, And so he screams out, who will save me? Because I can't. 
And the very next cry is this. There's two places in Scripture you need to camp on. It's Romans 5.1 and Romans 8.1. Defeat, death, we can't do it, we're messed up, we're doomed. But God did everything. That's Romans 5. And then this is the flip side of that. There is now no condemnation. You may feel this way. You may have lived this way. You may be struggling right now. But if you have trusted Christ, this is the reality. It's not just facts. It's not just I said this prayer or I made this choice. But there is a living relationship with a real living God who knows you, who loves you, who wants you to grow in every way which is meaningful. And nothing, nothing is the same. But so much of it seems the same. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by our flesh, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of our sinful flesh to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law, all that God asks of us, might be fully met in us who do not live according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Are you in Christ? Okay, all of us divide into two categories. And there may may be a number of you who can honestly say, no, I'm not. I'm checking this out. I want to see what works. What is real? Does faith make a difference? I'm on a journey. I'm seeking. And that's absolutely fine. Okay, and we're going to talk about that. I'm going to talk about that a bit more next week as well. But for everybody who's called upon Christ, would you raise your hand if you've called upon Christ? If If you know there's nothing you can do to get to God, but he's done everything for you. If your hand is raised and you know that it's a fact, do you feel condemnation? Do you feel condemnation as a believer? Because if you do, it's not from God. If you feel guilt, it is not from God. If you feel shame, it is not from God. It is the old nature flaring up. It is the autopilot that we've cultivated so unconsciously, so deliberately, so collectively in the way that we see ourselves. This imprint, which even though the hand is gone, the clay still holds the impression. That's our old nature. And it's so strong and it's so pervasive. We just like a knee-jerk reaction uh, when we feel sin. Either this Romans 6, I need it to complete me, deception, or this Romans 7, God's going to get me. God's going to get me. Uh. Both of those are not from God. They are lies. Okay, the lion, fastest, fastest jungle cat in the world, right? No, come on, guys. Seriously, this is fourth grade question. The cheetah, right? Cheetah's the fastest of the big cats. You have pumas and jaguars and all these fat cat, fast cats. But the fat cat, the big boy, that's the lion. Now, the lion's fast. I'm not outrunning a lion. I just have to outrun one of you, you know, if a lion gets in here. So I'm, I figure I'm, I'm at least okay. But, but even though we can't outrun a lion, most of the, most of the prey uh, on the Serengeti, they can outrun lions. Okay? They, you know, cheetahs, other things... Probably not going to outrun them. But a lion, if they can just get a good start, lion's big. Lion's going to run out of steam in about four or five seconds, not going to run them down. So what does a lion do? Lion has an extra set of vocal cords. So lion's got four sets of vocal cords. We have two. I think lion opera would be pretty awesome. That's another sidebar. Um, And the extra set of vocal cords allow it to project this frightening 130 decibel voice, which paralyzes its prey. 
So the reality is the prey can get away from the lion. But the, and the lion knows that. So what does the lion do? Convinces the prey that it's doomed, that there's no point in getting away. And so they have, there's this horrible, this, this ferocious voice. <laughs> he turned it down nice. <laughs> I don't have the reverb going. Okay, imagine a terrifying voice. And, and, and the, the prey is paralyzed and the lion just walks up and gets it or, or tears it apart. That's what Satan does. Because we have been definitively transferred from the realm of sin and death where there is a claim on us. We've been saved. We're in the safe house of Christ. There is no claim. The lion can't get us. So he deceives us with Loud lies, a way of saying nothing's changed. You're still under my control. Uh, You're still a sinner. And so it's these lies that paralyze us so we can be ineffective and taken out, even though the reality is much different. And so what Paul has been building up and building up is saying, this is how steeped we are in sin, how unable we are to free ourselves. And because of that, this is why it is so familiar. This has formed us the way of being and believing and, and making life. That's the most real thing to us. So when everything changes in Christ, spiritually everything's been remapped. But the physical lives we're still living, they smell, a lot. They smell the same. They look the same. They feel the same. And this is where God does his best work. What is real? What is most valuable? What do we truly believe? And how does that life look in comparison to the rest? The whole view of salvation is laid out here. We have what um, the more mainline or liberal church has more emphasized, which is called the medicinal view. The law of the spirit of life has set you free from the law of death. When we said, thank you, God, I got this. We're going to go our own way. We disconnected ourselves from our power source. And so what was meant to give life is no longer flowing in us. And all of life is just this entropy and death. And so being reconnected to the the giver of life, um, we have to rethink the way life works. You see, we've become so accustomed to dying, to expecting death, expecting things to fade, expecting things to fail. Death is such a familiar part of every aspect of life that in Christ we need to learn again what it is to live and what it is to expect that things will grow, that things can flourish, that it can be very different. But what it means now is that we're not limited to our own reserves of strength, but to all that God has. Goes on to say that the gospel is not just being the spirit of life giving us life, but it says in order that the requirement of the law would be fulfilled in us. And this is the side of the atonement that more conservative churches uh, feature penal substitutionary atonement or what I call the exchanged life. Said that Christ obeyed fully where Adam failed and where each of us in his footsteps have failed, we have disobeyed. God took not just the disobedience away in Christ and pure justice, but it was his full obedience for us. So that means that there is nothing that's going to catch us up or trip us up or mess us up. There's nothing that we're going to forget to have taken care of that's going to just rear up. There is no condemnation. There is peace. There is freedom. The exchanged life means that Christ has participated fully in our lives so we can now participate fully in his.
Okay, Paul starts to flesh this out. Those who live according to the flesh, and remember when it says flesh here, best translation would be old sin identity. It's not talking about the body. We need to live according to our bodies. If we don't eat, we die. If we don't take care of it, we're going to live an impoverished life. Okay, so there's nothing wrong with our physical bodies. It's talking about our old sin identity, me apart from God. So those who live according to this flesh or old sin identity have their minds set on what the flesh desires. But those who live in accordance with the spirit, the spirit of God, have their mind set on what the spirit desires. The mind governed or controlled by the flesh is death. But the mind governed by the spirit is life and peace. The mind governed by the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. That's why I took last week Romans 7 as being the non-believer. Those who are in the realm of the flesh cannot please God. Okay, the English translate, it's this one word, and it has this beautiful translation, and both senses come out here. And so in one sense, it talks about this worldview, this way that all of us apart from God have determined, this is how the world works, this is what's right, this is what's wrong, this is what's good for me, this is what I need, this is what I want, this is who I am, this is how life best works, and if I do these things... Then I'm, and then I'm okay. And we've all worked this out in our feelings and in our thoughts and our interactions. And we have a sense of the world. This is life apart from God. And there's this translation where you could say the mindset of the flesh. In other words, how we see us apart from God. It's a passive orientation. It's just this is the way things work. This is how things go downhill. This is how things go uphill in my world. But you could also translate it the mind which is set on the flesh. That's an active pursuit. Because there's a mindset, a passive way of this is how the the world works, there's a mindset on it. In order to get what I need, I'm going to then do this. I'm going to say this. I'm going to portray myself like this kind of person. And so what Paul is saying is that there's this alignment that takes place, and we either aligned with the way of the world, or we're aligned with the way of Christ. Now, anybody who's not in Christ is only aligned to the way of the world, and that was all of us before that. When we come to Christ, we have a completely new alignment in reality, but our experience, what we see, is this old alignment. Anybody ever been to an amusement park? Come on, seriously? Nobody's been to the boardwalk in Santa Cruz? Thank you. Okay, roller coasters. Any, any speed freaks out there riding roller coasters? Any kids who are speed freaks and you're finding your mortality as you get older? Uh-huh. Yeah, I'm in that category now. Um, good times. Apparently, the, the fluid in your ear gets thicker. Yeah, who knew? Um, it's still, it's a labor of love going on the crazy roller coasters with the kids. Well, if you do roller coasters all day, what happens at night when you're going to sleep? You still feel like you're doing the roller coaster. You're still seeing the stuff going and you're still moving. Why? Because you had this really powerful impression saying this is what's going on. And even though you're in your bed and you're tired and you're laying there and you know you're not on the roller coaster, still the same thing. That's what's going on with this. We had an entire life of a sin identity which was much more profound and traumatic, Stockholm Syndrome, than a day at the park. And that's what's on autopilot when we're not being deliberate with realizing who we are in Christ. Guys recognize what this is? What is it? Yeah, that's right. It's a sketch. Um, Lots of different names. It's a sketch. These are just wonderful. This is the reason I don't do art ever. 
Um, now, now, some people start showing off. You know, you can see that's a sketch. We all know how it works. It's got this little little magnet deal, and it's got some metal filings. And you you move these controls, one knob up and down, one right, right and left, and you just you can draw things. Apparently, some people better than others. Okay, that's that's getting a little more ridiculous. Okay, that's Van Gogh's Starry Night. Some people have way too much time on their hands. I don't even know what that is other than I'm never drawing anything again. I mean, that's just amazing. Etch-a-Sketch. Now, as I said, the technology is pretty simple. It's just you have magnets, uh, metal filings, ferrous metals, anything with iron in them. They're attracted to, to um, a magnetic field. Simple so far. Well, if you put a magnet, say, under a piece of paper, and then you put metal filings on it, you get these patterns. Now, the metal filings, they just align according to these uh, invisible magnetic fields. That's the um, technology behind the Etch-A-Sketch, and that's really behind this experiment. All right? And so here's just a standard magnet, north-south pole. It's kind of sticking up underneath kind of sticking up underneath a piece of paper. We have some metal filings, and that's all cool and right and good. This is what happens when you only have one magnetic pole. Okay, So in other words, rather than the magnet being like this, you just, you just have one pole touching and not another pole, and that's all there is. Notice the orientation. Notice the alignment. Okay, That's probably the best example of the mindset of the flesh and according to the mindset on the flesh. Okay, this is what the, a mindset of the flesh is described as in what we just read. Unable and unwilling to do good before God. Well, we can do good. It's just not going to get us anything, any merit before God. That we're hostile toward God, unwilling to submit, unable to please God, and it's unto death. It's the invisible entropy of the soul. You see, this, notice the alignment in the field. Everything is all unto and toward the very thing in the middle, but none of it's actually connecting or touching. See, if you are the only pole, the only center of your life, i.e. apart from God, that's our default setting, then everything, whatever the magnetic filings in your life are, your relationships, your use of time, your use of resources, your use of wealth, um, all the detritus of your life that says, this is my identity, the toys, the accomplishments, whatever it is, all the, the a whole life is going to orient like that around you. And it'll all be about you, and it'll all be from you, and it'll all be under you, and none of it will change you whatsoever, and you will die. That's the mindset of the flesh, and all of us were like that. But there's a description of the opposite of this as well, and we read it as well, called the mindset of the spirit. Able to please God, unto life, unto peace, the invisible regeneration of the soul, and it looks a lot more like that. It's a relationship. God is Trinity. He's relationship. We're created in his image. So we're created to relate to our maker. And when we have the mindset of the spirit, notice how everything aligns. Everything aligns toward God or toward the object of his love. Everything that we see, we can look through. And whatever direction we're looking, it's going to go back to God. And anything that's emanating from God is going to touch us in some way. It's this beautiful, harmonious relationship. That's the mindset of the spirit. That's the mindset of the flesh. And just below the surface is this orientation where we want to rearrange our life, rearrange our relationships, rearrange any claims or obligation on us so it looks like this rather than submitting and surrendering relationship and it fits and it looks like that. Okay. 
Continuing, you, however, are not in the realm of the flesh, but are in the realm of the spirit. If indeed the spirit of God lives in you. And if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, they do not belong to Christ. So I think this is one of the best definitions of salvation. It's not saying a prayer. Salvation's not saying a prayer. Salvation's not feeling bad enough in a moment of crisis. Salvation is not making great promises of this is what I'll do and if you do that for me. Salvation is not being broken down enough. Salvation is not just having your eyes open to this truth and, and, and confessing these things. As I said last week and the week before and the week before, these might be elements of our faith journey. These might be very powerful points at which the, the, the mindset of the spirit breaks through into our mindset of the flesh and, and we encounter a real person. But salvation comes down to this. Do you have the spirit of God in you? And if you do, it's going to be obvious over time. It's going to be a reorientation. It's going to be life. It's going to be peace. And that's the rest of the journey. If Christ is in you, even though your body is subject to death because of sin, the spirit gives life because of righteousness. And if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of his spirit who lives in you. This is what Paul's been harping on this whole time. In his 25, 30 years of ministry in church planning and seeing people grow and seeing people backslide and seeing people, the most unlikely people, have the most incredible transformations of grace. For seeing ministry partners who you just, he couldn't imagine these people would be going so strong and he's just delighted in them. And others who started out so well and who are now shipwrecked and messed up in their faith. He saw how all of this worked out and he keeps coming back to the same thing. Life in the Spirit is a deliberate daily choice. Because if we're not actively choosing who we obey, if we're not actively deciding what identity are we operating out of, which one lasts, which one doesn't, which one is real and giving me life, which one is false and, and, and has brought me death. Unless we're actively making that decision, we have a default which will always happen. And it's that orientation which is just about us. That is why there's that horribly sad statement in Matthew 7 when people are saying, but God, didn't we do all these things to you? Wasn't my life, wasn't everything aligned? Yeah, it was aligned, but I never knew you. There was no point of connection. Romans 6, we saw that this old identity was that we, we still see sin as wrong. We still see sin as somehow completing us, or we need it, or, or we can push, push back a bit, or we can be a little less real with others. And that's, that's the identity, the illusion that we have to work through. Romans 7, like I said before, we still see how we react the wrong way to God because we see ourselves in the wrong light. We get to choose, but we need to choose. But here's the question that comes to mind. Why would anyone choose death and decay? If we as believers know the old way of thinking, the old way of feeling, the old way of being and reacting has got us nowhere. It, it has left us bereft. And in our, in our, our lostness, we just said, Lord, save me. If we recognize that, why do we keep defaulting to this orientation? Because we don't see it. We don't see it. You see, it's not an identity in how we see the world. 
Do you remember the orientation? It all comes back to us. And so our old sin identity isn't the way of just seeing the world like um, there's the real world that's out there. And then Satan draws this false view of the world and he hangs it over our face. And we're just like walking around and we don't really see reality. And we come to God. Oh, it's reality. It's so much more pervasive because it has to do not just with what we see, but what we feel, what we believe. The reason we don't see it is because we only see ourselves. Stats are a little bit off, and you can apply this to any social media, and a number of studies have been done. One study says this. About 94% of all Twitter users, 94% believe that every single person who's following them reads all of their tweets. 5% of the same Twitter users said that they read anyone else's tweets. See the difference? Everybody believes that whatever I send out there, everybody's looking at me. But the reality is I know I'm not doing that with anyone else. Okay, this is, this is the whole identity thing here. We don't see the world because we're too busy looking at ourselves. Our identity, our old sin identity, it warps it back on us. And so rather than seeing how this is not working or not fitting in life, all we're seeing is the same Same identity, nothing has changed. Why isn't life working? Okay, let's flip it around the other way. Why would anyone not choose life in peace? For the same reason. Because we just don't see it. Whether it's we can't see past our old sin identity, or the fact that the kingdom of God is already and not yet. The kingdom of God is coming in and through us. The kingdom of God is based in real lives, having real change, and we are still part of that story. And so God has invited us into an unfinished work in our hearts, amongst us, and through us. And it's not fully revealed. That's why the Spirit of God, that's why that word is used to refer to a third person of the Trinity. It's ephemeral. It's wind. We can see the effects of the wind. We can't see the wind. We can see the effects of the Spirit as I change, but we can't see the Spirit. And so we don't choose life because we don't see it on a regular basis. Our eyes haven't been accustomed to walk by faith yet. This is why short-term mission experiences can be so powerful. Because what short-term mission experiences do is one thing. They take every advantage, every ability, every opportunity you had to really make a difference and just take it right away from you. And say, okay, now you can discover God. Because rather than having these abilities, a language ability or experience or something to offer, most short-term missions involve stepping out of your comfort zone. I, I, I have a language barrier. I, I can't swing a hammer. I've, I've never worked with kids. I, 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 and when all the familiar is taken away, we're vulnerable, and we can see much more God working in between the spaces. We can see much more God working beyond our ability, God working in our weakness, or God working in our limitations. Okay, got to finish up. Therefore, Brothers and sisters, we have an obligation, but it's not to the flesh to live according to it. If you live according to the flesh, you will die. Remember, the lethal dose for addicts remains the same. The tolerance keeps going up because it's familiar, more familiar, more familiar. I can handle this. The lethal dose remains the same, as we saw all too tragically a few weeks ago. Same thing with sin. Just because it's familiar, just because we think we can control it, it is still lethal. It still brings death and loss. 
For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. For those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. The Spirit you received does not make you slaves so you live in fear again. Rather, the Spirit you received brought about your adoption as sonship and daughtership, by which we cry, Daddy, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs with God, co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings, in order that we may also share in his glory. Now, if you're starting to panic, if you realize I'm going from preaching to meddling, it's okay, because Paul's ramping this thing up, and we're really going to stick it next week. Uh, that's, that's what this whole section is leading up to, the end of Romans 8. But three things that we want to focus on here talks about we have this default way of looking at the world the way we used to be nothing's changed and that's just how we wake up that's how we go into the day and we have an opportunity in Christ to say no this is the true reality how exactly are we supposed to do that when life happens when we're day late and a dollar short when we're pressed when we're on margin when we're already messing up and we're we're just we're trying to do our best god help me how exactly are we supposed to cultivate this new mindset which we're really not sure what it looks like and, and this new engagement with god which still is mixed in with a lot of old familiar stuff paul touches on three things here um, I hiked the bottom of the Grand Canyon once, about six out, six mile trip down from top to bottom, Havasu by Trail. And um, much of it, you can just kind of go off book. You just wander down. You just keep going down. I guess we're going the right way. We're still going down. But there's some parts that get a little hairy where like, there's a 300-foot cliff, and you're going in and out of it, and they have like these chains you have to hold on to and other things. Not unlike our faith journey. There's parts of it of just follow me just this way. Wagons ho, let's move out. And it's just a matter of us going. But there's other parts of the journey that can be pretty precarious or pretty deliberate or intense. And that's where there's guides and there's handholds and there's chains. That's what Paul's providing here. Some guides and handholds and chains and saying there's a lot of life we're going to be working out. But these are three points of contact that make the difference. Okay, what are the three things that he gave us? Because he's talking about a mindset and a way of thinking. And he's saying, really? Thinking's not going to do it for us. Okay, first thing. We need to be engaged in the matter of our feelings. Can I call this daddy theology? Up until Christ, God was one thing to us, our judge, our maker. We went our own way. God's perfect. We're not the justice we cry out for when others wrong us. That justice is coming our way. So God is our judge. And when we do wrong, when we hurt others, hurting people hurt people, right? Um, That's a wall between us and God. That's real guilt. That's real condemnation. That is the real mindset of the flesh and Oh, man, this, this is not looking good, okay? And so he's only our judge, and we tend to see God as our judge. God's going to get you for this. God's going to get you for that. Everything that you do, God's going to get you. I saw that. I saw that too. I'm watching you. Um, we have this mindset, but when we come to Christ, God moves from our judge to our father. We are adopted. It says we are adopted as his children. That's why we cry out, Daddy. We don't cry out, Master. We don't cry out, uh, Lord God Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, I pray you will not smite me, smiter. And, and you just, just, nobody move. I hope you didn't see me. I'm, just, I'm thin. Maybe you won't see me if I go sideways. It's relational. You're wanted. You're known. You're noticed. You're the most important thing on the horizon for God. He's come to you. Daddy. He's not judge. He is father. So when you mess up, it's not he's going to get you. Or, oops, I forgot to punish you for this. Or, I'm going to just spank you. I'm sure you're guilty of something. But it's father. 
it's, this is hurtful. This is wrong. No, no, stop. No, I got it. Okay, I've got it. I got to, you know, be a little more direct or a little more gentle or whatever it is. But there is love. There could be hurt. There could be harm. There could be disappointment. But it's all under relationship. And so we need to see when we relate to God, are we feeling like he's our judge and we're coming to him vomiting forth apologies? Do we do that? Because I do that all the time. When I'm on default, when I realize I've just been skating in the old sin identity, how do I know? I sin, I come to God, and I'm covered in vomit. Okay? I had food poisoning once. Okay, this is the last story that's going to stick in your head. I'm sorry, right before lunch. But um, if you remember and it helps you in Christ, then you're welcome. I had a horrible case of food poisoning, and I'm on the phone to somebody, and I'm trying to be polite, and I'm just like, oh, and I gotta go, I gotta go, and I'm just dying. And I finally, I hung up the phone, I go running down the hall, oh, there's a bathroom there. I go running, public bathroom, I open up the door. Um, I'll spare you the details, but let's say I didn't quite make it. And I, I prepped my approach by um, a little pre-lubrication on the floor. I, I kind of threw up, and my next step, and the breakneck speed was right on where I'd just thrown up, so my feet go flying over my head, my back hits where I'd thrown up, I slide into a giant trash can, public restroom trash can, which of course is completely full, falls over on me, I'm on my back, I'm throwing up, as the contents of this public restroom, I'll spare you the details, trash can, is emptying on me, and I'm just under this, like this, like this magma thing, just kind of, just that's that's a horrible image right that's a horrible image that's exactly what we do when we still feel that God is our judge and not our father when we sin we come into the throne room of grace to receive grace and mercy in time of need and he's he's just come to me and we're just covered in vomit, vomiting forth excuses and apologies and justifications and explanations and just and he's like stop just stop. I've cleaned you off. White robe of righteousness. Get up. Move forward. That's what's going on. And so the first area that we need to feel it, and when he gives us his Holy Spirit to do so, is in daddy theology. Do we see him as our daddy? Do we see him as the one who loves us? The one who's got our beginning and end? Or do we just see him as our judge? Second thing, moving on. Assurance. Says that, that we need the Spirit for assurance. His Spirit, the Spirit of God, testifies with our spirit that we're his children. I use the example of learning a language. How many people have studied a language and learned it? Okay, you know there's uphill, there's downhill, there's progress, one step forward, two steps back, that you'll be going along and then you just plateau and you plateau. Oh, I, what's going on? Maybe I need Rosetta Stone. And then you know you'll start chugging away, there'll be, you know, something happens and you start doing better. And then you kind of plug away and you start doing better. Faith is no different. That there are necessary times in our journeys of faith where we need to flatline, where we need to own. Is God booing us along or are we just kind of kicking it? Um, there are times that we need to struggle. We need to Jacob. We need to wrestle God. We, there needs to be a place for doubt because without doubt, there can't be faith. Okay? And that's the reality of it. Well, in order for that to happen, we need assurance. And so beyond the level of our understanding, beyond the level of the facts and the way life feels and works out, God gives his spirit, his spirit that beneath this, we can feel this tether holding us to the space station. We can go out on a spacewalk. This assurance. Proverbs 3, 5. Trust in the Lord with all your heart, but do not lean on your own understanding. 
God wants us to understand. He's given us great minds to understand so much, but it's not enough. And so the second way that he dials us into the new mindset is that we have an assurance beyond our understanding by his spirit that we are tied in, that he keeps pulling us back, that he holds us close. And then finally, what we're willing to do, in other words, how much we're willing to suffer. That when we truly see the value of who God is, of what he's doing in us, in the world, this is what we're willing to let go of. This is what we're willing to pay forward. This is what we're willing to endure, to deal with, because it is so worth it. It's only when we're operating out of the mindset of the spirit, we can see the value and the cost isn't going to be anything for us to be able to pay. What if I told you that you're now the owner of 12 square blocks in downtown financial district? All you have to do to claim ownership is to refurbish the buildings yourself. Right? Now, would it be fair to say, because that's a fact. I just told you that. So what are you guys doing? Each of you, okay, under your seat, each has a map, and each of you have, have your blocks, and you own these now, and all you have to do is refurbish them to take ownership. Would it be fair to say in that example that your work ethic would be directly related to the amount that you believe that to be true? If you really believe you would own 12 straight blocks and all you had to do is refurbish the buildings, if you're down there doing it yourself with whatever resources you had, that would show, yeah, you believe it. You're on board. I read somewhere that we're heirs to the new heavens and the new earth, co-heirs with Christ. That's what Paul's saying here. And all we have to do to take occupation is just to do, be involved in God's refurbishment, bringing life with his death binding up the brokenhearted, release to the captive, sight to the blind. And we take ownership. And so we're able to see the tremendous value by the Spirit of God. And then we're able to endure whatever. See, God's trusted, entrusted authority to us in so many ways. If you're married, you no longer have authority over your body. You have authority over your spouse's body. Okay, if you have children, you have authority. If you're an employer or employee, you have authority. God's given us opportunities to work all of this out. But how much are we willing to do so in submission to him? When I think about suffering, I get nervous because I know how quickly I can quit in my own strength, how quickly I can get tired, how quickly it can be too much. But remember, in the same way that God doesn't ask us to love everyone, we couldn't, it's impossible. We can track maybe 150 people in our mind. Everyone else is just a monkey somewhere. Um, that's just how we're made. So it's impossible to love everybody. God asks us to love anyone. Anyone he would bring into our life. Anyone he'd bring us across our path. Likewise, God doesn't ask us to be willing to endure every suffering. He just asks us to be willing to endure the next one that he brings in our life that is pulling away the false image, the false sin identity, the false alignment, and it's grounding us in what most matters. See, the lens we look through and choose to operate will determine our actions, it'll determine where we spend ourselves, and it'll determine when all is said and done, when you look at the iron filings of our life, what the alignment actually is. The grass is always greener where you water it. Where you water it. In your bulletins this week and last week and next week as well, there's an insert, might be a bit curious if you're joining us, called Burdens, Sins, uh, Guilt, Shame, Where I Hurt, Where I Hate. Um, and I'm guessing for most of you, and mine is blank still, and that's okay. 
What, what, I'm, what I'm asking is that take it with you, pray about it. And it might be apparent that you don't know Christ, that there is just a wall of separation, of guilt, of, of it's just too much. And we're going to deal with that next week. Or as a believer, you might say, but this is still the life that doesn't make sense to me. This is where I'm being chafed and worn down. This is where I'm just bleeding out. This is where I just don't have that vitality in Christ. This is where I can't forgive. This is where this part I just can't visit or I keep locked up inside. Whatever it is that is still a hangover from the old sin identity. This is how I react to God. Maybe it's I still think God's going to get me. I, I still think I'm not measuring up. Whatever it is where you're feeling calling up, being called up short, or you don't feel no matter what's going on, you can't immediately walk into the throne of grace to receive grace and mercy. If you're still coming to God, even with a speck of vomit on, whatever the case may be where we catch ourselves operating out of the lies and the death and the slavery, that's the old sin identity, I want you to write these things down on the sheet. Where I'm stuck, where I'm not believing, where I'm empty-handed. And just keep filling this out and please bring it next week because we're going to have a very special communion service um, in in, um, making this a lot more real. This is life. This is the rest of life. It's an alignment. It's an engagement. It's what's ultimately true, what we ultimately choose each and every day, and there's absolutely real consequences. God did not come. God did not give up everything. God does not hope and bear and believe and, and is with us just so we can continue to drift and a little bit better and a little bit off. But if we're serious about laying a hold of him as he is with us, Man, he is there upholding us during the plateaus. He is there with his arms wrapped around us when we're wrestling hard. He is not far away when it seems like everyone has pulled off and abandoned us. And to the extent that we can see this and get this and feel that, the extent that we can know he is our daddy who loves us, we have the spirit that holds us close even when we doubt and when we struggle and that we're able to see the value so that we want this, everything else has changed that we can get out of the way and let God do his very best work. Let's pray. Lord God, this is not just a get it sermon. This is not just an aha and figuring it out. Because the truth is obvious. Your truth is obvious. This is how we're to live. This is new life in you. This is freedom. We know what life is. We know what death is. We're so familiar with what doesn't work and what's falling apart. Lord God, this is a relationship a relationship with you, first and foremost, somebody that we can trust, somebody that we can open up to, we can be vulnerable with, someone we can be weak with, somebody we can fall down upon. Help us to see you more as you are. And if there's anything in our heart that prevents us from seeing you, from feeling you, from responding to you, from relating to you as you are, make that painfully, painfully aware. More than a stone in in a shoe on a hike, more than a chafing blister, make that painfully aware that we would not accommodate one more week with putting up with something that is false, that's bringing death, that's getting in the way. I thank you for your love. I thank you for your grace, grace, Father. And I pray far more than just behavior modification, far more than looking right and smelling right or trying to do better, that we would long for the freedom, the hope, the grace that it could truly only be found in your arms. Let us settle for nothing less because you haven't in Christ's name.
I, I don't know where, I, I honestly don't know where ultimately where any of you are in your faith journey um, here today. Just, uh, just popped in my head, thought it might be helpful. Um, I, I, like I said, have been very open where I wrestle with all sorts of things. And that's fine. I, there's a, a place for doubt. And, and I struggle a lot with it. God's word. And what about this? And what about that? And all of that. And, and I remember reading about uh, a, um, a, a pastor, preacher, who uh, struggled in the same way. And the way he resolved this was he was out preaching. As he says, he was preaching to the alligators practicing. Uh, and he just said, there's just... The doubts were just overwhelming him. How could it be this? And how could it be that? And life is like this. And I read this in the word, but it's so different. And he just, it was driving him crazy. So he said, I'm just going to, I just, I'm not even going to go there anymore. God, there's so little that I truly am able to understand. But by faith, I trust you that everything that you said in your word, perfect in purpose, I'm going to trust you for it. Step out on faith, live my life, and, and I'm going to trust you as a person rather than my understanding. That was Billy Graham about 65 years ago who did that. And I think it worked out pretty well for him. I was going to say, you know, from my perspective, that's the silliest thing you can do. Because really, you're not focusing on the facts. You're not focusing on anything. But from God's perspective, that's all he asked us to do. Because it was never about the facts. It was never about our understanding. It was always about him. And what this is about is there is a person who knows you, who loves you, who wants you, who has removed every impediment that would prevent you from coming to him. And that he wants you to know his heart. He says, come. No matter what, he says, come. He says, I have cleansed you. I have forgiven you. I love you. It is real. It is personal. Okay? Please don't go out of here thinking it's a bunch of facts to sift through. They have their place. But behind all of that, there is a loving God. There is a living God who knows everything about you, delights in you, fell in love with you before the universe was founded, and has come toward you. Today is the day of salvation. Sit on that. Camp on that. We're going to come back next week, and we're going to blow both of those up according to God's word. If you would like prayer about this, if God has been revealing things, areas of stuckness, areas of hurt or bondage, we want to pray with you. We want to minister with uh, the Lord with you. And so I'd like to invite our prayer counselors down. They're going to be right here. If you'd like to find out next steps and just how to get more connected to Bethel or questions through those doors or some couches, some people would love to talk with you. And uh, again, I just encourage you with all that's going on with church, the bulletin, lots of ways that we can continue to be deliberate in saying, I choose to follow this person and not the way it feels based on um, the rest of my life. Go in peace, walk in love as he loved us and gave us an example, laying down his life to serve us. In Christ's name, I bless you and I'll see you next week. Take care.